0: We're in our third week of our series called Guardrails, and uh, just in case you haven't been part of the series, or maybe this is your first time tuning into it, a guardrail is this. It's a system designed to keep you from straying into dangerous, off-limit areas. So guardrails are found on the sides of bridges, so you don't go off into the river or into the abyss. They're on corners. They run down the middle of our motorway so we don't have head-on crashes. They are there to stop us from straying into areas that are dangerous. Guardrails do two things. They protect us and they direct us. They direct us in the way that we should go so that we don't drive off the cliff and they protect us. If you hit a guardrail, you may end up at the panel beaters, but generally you won't end up in hospital, which is a good thing. But guardrails are never actually placed in the danger zone. They're always placed a little... Inside the safety zone because a guardrail is no good right on the edge. We want it a little bit safer inside, and no one complains that a guardrail is a little bit inside the safety area, keeping us safe. They're designed to minimize damage, but roads aren't the only place that we need guardrails. As you would have heard over the last two weeks, we need guardrails in our lives, we need guardrails around our finances, around our friendships, around our relationships. Around ourselves, professionally, every area of our life requires some form of guardrail. And a guardrail is this: it's a it's a personal rule for me, for you as a person, for me, not for others, but for me. Not for you, so that I can tell you how you should live your life, but actually, it's for me personally, so that I can uh, have a standard of behaviour that becomes a matter of conscience for me. It's it's for me. Guardrails are not something that you put on others. Guardrails is something that you put upon yourself. You have a standard of behavior that becomes a matter of conscience. And so you decide for yourself, financially or professionally, when it comes to your friends or when it comes to you personally, that you're gonna have this standard that you wanna live to or live by that as you drift possibly in life towards danger, that you're going to bump into that guardrail and it's going to light up your conscience and send you a warning and say, hey, you're about to go into a dangerous place. The point of a guardrail is to light up your conscience before you hurt others and before you hurt yourself. Guardrails are for us. They're not for everybody else, but they're for us, our guardrails. And today I want to talk to you about some moral guardrails. Moral guardrails in guiding your marriage. Moral guardrails in guiding yourself before marriage. And guarding yourself from married people. (laughs) I don't know about you, but there are some married people that I want to be guarded from. And uh, I certainly don't want my marriage to end up like this. Can I get an amen? Don't elbow the person sitting next to you. Nowhere else, the thing about this, when we start talking about Moral stuff is that no, in no other area in society does our culture do a better job of baiting us to the edge and then shaming us when we fall over other than when it comes to moral boundaries or faithfulness towards our spouse or significant other. The problem is is that to a certain degree, we are actually complicit in all of this because we entertain ourselves with media and movies and music that actually glorifies sex outside of marriage and it actually glorifies affairs. If you go to a rom-com, half the rom-coms are about people finding someone other than the person that they're already married to. And we celebrate that or we entertain ourselves with this and then what happens is we then freak out when someone we know actually goes and has an affair. We freak out about it. And it's the area in culture that does more to bait us to the edge. Sexual stuff, culture does more to bait us to the edge of disaster and then shame us when we actually step across the line. There's nothing that baits us more and then shames us more than sexual failures. And here's the thing. If we could get one thing right as a society, if we could get one thing right as a community, if we could get one thing right as a nation, it would be this. And if we could get it right, everything would be better. There'd be less poverty. There would be less unwanted pregnancies. There would be less domestic violence. There would be fewer kids in the foster care system. There'd be fewer kids growing up in homes without a mum, or without a dad if we could get this one thing right. And all of us know someone, or we are someone, whose life would be completely different if guardrails were in place in this area of people's lives that we're talking about today, which is around sex. So if you've never tuned in to church this ever in your life, you've tuned in on a good day, because we're talking about sex in church. Woo! All right, 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he says this, flee from sexual immorality, and now, before you say in your head, oh my gosh, Craig is old school, and Before you say in your head, the problem of the church is it needs to understand that society's shifted and things have changed and things aren't what they were now. That things are different now. Society's changed. And the church needs to adapt in its view around sex before marriage and all those sorts of things. Well, before you start to rebuff the fact that I've just said flee sexual immorality, let me tell you something. There isn't a husband or a wife that's listening in right now that doesn't want their wife or their husband to flee sexual immorality. There's not a dad in that's listening right now that does not want their little girl to flee sexual immorality. There's not anyone listening right now that cares about someone that doesn't want them to end up and all sorts of sexual problems. I want them to flee it. So before you tell me that this is old school, I can tell you right now there's not a wife that's listening that doesn't want her husband to flee from sexual immorality when the opportunity comes along. When it comes to sexuality, we want people to care about, it at the very least, to be very, very careful and flee some of the things around sexuality. Unfortunately, as I said, we live in a culture that doesn't set us up to flee from, but to flirt with. Unfortunately, we live in a world that doesn't teach us to flee from, but to flirt with it. To hang on the edge of these things. And before you even think that we're against sex, we're not against sex, we're all for sex. God created sex, but God created it to be used in the right way. And when anything gets used in a way that it shouldn't, it always causes damage. And so we're for it, but it's to be done in the way that God created it to be. Because God gave us this extraordinary gift. But with that gift, he gives us guidelines or guardrails. And that's what we're talking about this morning. So as I said in 1 Corinthians 6.18, it says, flee from sexual immorality And then it says this, all other sins. It's funny that it says all other sins, because what he's doing here, the writer, Paul the Apostle, is he's putting sexual sin in a category of all of its own. So he's saying flee sexual immorality, all other sins. So it's almost like sexual immorality has, or sexual sin, has its own little space that it lives in. All the others are somewhere else. and the reason is, is because he's trying to say here that it's a sin like no other. It's different, and the reason why it's different is because of the, how uniquely damaging it is to people. You see, it's possible to recover financially, it's possible to recover professionally, it's possible to recover emotionally, but when it comes to sexual sin, it's not exactly that easy. And here's the thing, sexual sin is forgivable, absolutely forgivable and forgiven by God. The problem is the damage that can happen can last to such an effect that it affects future intimacy and future relationships time and time again. That's why you'll find people that were sexually abused at a young age, in their 50s, in their 60s, still struggling with it because it has an ability to damage people in such a way that it lasts a long time. The other thing about sexual sin that I found in in discussions that I've had with people and in my own world is that it will make you a liar and a secret keeper for life like no other sin what do i mean by that well i have people come and talk to me and they have no problem telling me that they struggle with drugs in the past or they struggle with alcohol in the past or they had a gambling problem in the past or they had a violence and anger problem in the past but people really struggle to tell you about their sexual issues people generally don't fess up to that kind of stuff and people admit bankruptcy and drug problems and all that but they very generally will not talk about their sexual issues and the reason is is because we, we we don't want people to think badly about us and so what it does is that rather than sharing that with our future spouse and letting them know the things that we've done in our past before we met them so that they know that they're coming into they know everything about you when they come into a relationship we it makes us a liar and a secret keeper because we don't want them to think badly of us. But here's the thing, all of this is forgivable and all of this has absolutely nothing to do with how much God loves you, how much God accepts you. I'm just saying, and Paul is just saying here, is that when it comes to sexual sin, there are consequences like no other sin. It goes on and, Verse 18, it says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside their body, but the one who sins sexually sins against their own body. And I suppose I had this question like, what does it mean or what does sin sexually really mean? Well, the interesting thing is, is that in the New Testament of the Bible, which Jesus spoke a lot into, the, the writings you'll find as you go through the different books of the Bible, it defines, it, it kind of shifts from rules, don't do this and do this and do that and don't do that and all that sort of stuff. It shifts from that and it starts to define sin virtually as anything that hurts someone, steals from someone or dishonors someone. That basically all sins derive from those three things. If you hurt someone, steal from someone or dishonor someone, the New Testament says that basically that's sinful. In fact, any time I put me before you to your detriment, it's considered a sin. And the reason is, is because any person you have the potential to hurt is a person that is loved by God. You can be okay with me, but if you hurt one of my children, I'm not gonna be okay with you. In fact, you can come and sing worship songs to me all day long and worship me all day long, but it won't make a difference to how I feel about you if you've done something to one of my kids because if you mistreat one of my kids, you and I are gonna have a problem. And our heavenly father, when we see us mistreat one of his kids, which we all are, it creates a problem. Anytime we hurt, steal from, or dishonor another person, you have offended your heavenly father because he loves the person you have hurt, or offended, or stolen from, or dishonored. God loves them. You know, I don't know about you, but. When I was growing up, one of the sayings my mum had was this one, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. That's one of the big sayings yeah, in, the, in the Christian world. Do unto others or treat others as you'd have them treat you. In other words, you want to treat people how you want people to treat you. So if, if you want them to buy you a Mac combo, you buy them a Mac combo. That's the idea behind it. The problem with that is the Bible takes it a whole lot further because God would say to you and I as Christians would say that we are to treat others the way that God through Christ has treated me. It's not so much treat others how you want to be treated, it's treat others the same way that God has treated you through what His Son did on the cross. It's a whole nother level of how we treat people. Why? Because God doesn't want you to hurt anyone and God doesn't want you to hurt you. God doesn't want you to hurt anybody and he doesn't want you to hurt yourself. And when you take this beautiful thing, sex, that was intended for this incredible covenant relationship that God created between a husband and a wife and you divide it, up amongst a whole lot of other relationships. You not only hurt all those other people, but you also hurt yourself. And this is everything to do with how much God loves you. It's everything to do with how much God honors you and cherishes you and how much he loves and honors and cherishes the person beside you, behind you and all around you. And all Paul is trying to say here is that the consequence of sexual sin is so great and God loves you so much that he just can't keep his mouth shut about this to you and I. In verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 6, it says, do you not know? In other words, Paul is trying to say, don't you know this? Like, don't you know that sexual sin is, creates major consequences and damage. And then he goes, do you not know? In other words, he's just about to tell you the reason why we need to stay away from sexual immorality, from sexual sin. Do you not know? Do you not know? In other words, there is something you need to know here. Because if you knew it, if you knew what I was about to tell you, it would affect your behavior and it would affect what you do. In other words, he's saying, if you knew this, it might impact and change the way you handle your sexuality. Remember, he's just said you wanna flee from that stuff. It's dangerous, it has consequences, it causes damage. And then he says, do you not know? In other words, if you knew this, if you knew what I was about to tell you, you would live your life really, really different, especially around your sexuality. And he goes on and he says, do you not know that your bodies?" are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. He's really saying here, do you not know who you really are? Do you not understand who you really are? I think it's really interesting that Paul here says at the start, hey, get away from sexual immorality. It's dangerous, it's gonna hurt you. And his solution to staying away from it is you understanding your identity. We live in a world that wants to rob us of our identity. That's why we have all, I don't know, all sorts of different genders and all sorts of different things all around the world. Why? Because because Paul's saying here the answer to living a life without sexual sin, without sexual immorality, so that your life doesn't get damaged is not doing a list of rules, but it's understanding your identity do you not know that you are a temple where the Holy Spirit resides? I've been to different countries around the world and there's temples in all sorts of places and temples are always considered sacred. And so he's kind of saying here, don't you understand that you are sacred? That you are a temple, that you are sacred? and that sacred, you are, you're more than just sacred because the Holy Spirit lives and abides within you. In other words, he's saying you are a sacred image bearer. You are a sacred thing that carries the image of God. You, you, you didn't just happen. You, didn't, you, went, you were designed and fine-tuned by God for intimacy with another person. And, and he says here that God's spirit resides, lives within you. And, and what I get from that is this, is that you need to understand something, that the, the value of the container is determined by what it contains. The value of the container is determined by what it contains. Your body is a container, it's a temple that contains the Holy Spirit. Let me, let me put it this way. If you stole my wallet, all right, but you left me the cash, my driver's license, my photos that I've got in there of my family, and all my cards, all my credit cards, and you just took my wallet and left me everything else, I wouldn't care that you stole my wallet. Because a wallet is no value The value of a wallet is not the wallet, it's what's in the wallet. That's why when people steal wallets, they go over to a rubbish bin and they pull the cash out and all the cards out, put that in their back pocket and they throw the wallet in the rubbish bin, why? Because there's no value in the wallet. The value of the wallet is what the wallet contains and the value of you is what you contain and you carry the Holy Spirit. What a What a container contains is what makes it valuable. And what makes you so valuable is that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's where He resides. And God says that you contain not just the Holy Spirit, but the image of God. You're created in His image. You are extraordinarily valuable. And so is everybody else. See, we have to understand that, that Paul is saying here that if you understood how valuable you were, if you understood how important you are, then you wouldn't do this because you understand your value. And then he goes on in verse 19 and he says, you are not your own. You are not your own. Yes, I am, I'm an adult. I can do whatever I want. My body, my choice. No, it's not your body, your choice. You are not your own. And you know what? You should be glad that you're not your own because ownership determines value as well. Not only is there value of the container by what it contains, but there's also value by who owns it. Let me put it this way: A wee while ago, um, there's a guitar, a Stratocaster guitar, which is meant to be one of the best guitars in the world. They, they usually sell for about eighteen hundred US dollars, but just recently, one of those guitars sold at auction for forty-five thousand dollars. And you have to ask yourself, why would you pay forty-five thousand dollars US for a guitar that's worth eighteen hundred? You know why someone spent 45000 US on a guitar that's worth $1,800? Because that guitar was owned by Eric Clapton, one of the greatest guitarists in the world. And so here's the thing, this $1,800 guitar had a value of $45,000 because of who owned it. If I had taken that guitar to auction and said, hey, here's my guitar I own, I may not even got $1,800 for it. But because it's owned by Eric Clapton, it was $45,000. The value skyrocketed because of who owned the guitar. And the thing is that we want to be owned by our father because then our value skyrockets because of who owns us. Not only is our value huge because of what we contain, but our value increases because of who owns us. And we are owned by a heavenly father, which gives us incredible value. It goes on and says, you are not your own. You are bought at a price. You see, the value of something is determined by what somebody is willing to pay for it. The reason that the guitar was worth 45,000 is because someone was prepared to pay 45,000 for it. And this is such a great piece of scripture because Paul is trying to show us here that the value of you is because of what is contained within you. But not only is there value in you because of what is contained within you, the Holy Spirit, but there's incredible value in you because of who owns you. And not only are you incredibly valuable because God owns you, but then there's this incredible value because He paid the greatest price that he could ever pay for you when he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. God just adds value and value and value to us and Paul is trying to say, hey man, don't get caught up in sexual sin and sexual immorality. Do you not know how valuable you are? Don't waste your value. Don't sell it cheap. And he goes on and he says in verse 20, therefore, Honour God with your bodies. Therefore, because you are so valuable, therefore, because God owns you, therefore, because he paid such a great price for you, honour him with your bodies. Therefore, in light of these extraordinary consequences of sexual sin and in light of how incredibly valuable you are, honour God. With your bodies. What is that? That's a New Testament guardrail for you and for I. Honour God with your bodies. And honour God with how you treat others' bodies. Because they are incredibly valuable to your Father in heaven. And we believe that every single person bears the image of God and deserves our utmost respect, not because of their behavior, but because of whose image they bear. And Paul says to them, do you not know? And my response to you is, now you know. Now you know. Now you know why you shouldn't do this. And what a different world we would be living in if every single person saw people and treated everyone with the value that God treats them. What a different world we would live in if we saw everyone and valued everyone and treated everyone the way that God treats them. Fleeing sexual immorality requires guardrails. It doesn't just happen. There has to be intention to what we're doing. And and I just want to give you three Suggestions of moral guardrails that you can put into your life, and you might hear these and you might not agree with them. And you know what? That's okay. I just ask that you would actually go home. And if you don't like these ones, that you would go home or at home or wherever you are, that you would take time out to set some time aside to put some guardrails in place around your life, and your sexuality. The first thing that I think is a good moral guardrail to put into your life is with your husband or your wife, with your spouse, is talk about it. Talk about it. Have a conversation. What are you comfortable with your partner's relationship with the opposite sex? What are you comfortable with them doing? What, what is appropriate behavior as you discuss it as a couple, around the opposite sex. You know, we want to have a discussion at work or whatever. What is the appropriate behavior? How do, how do I expect you to behave? How do I, what is appropriate? You know, because in work scenarios, sometimes we have to work with the opposite sex, so we have to put some things in place, but we can't avoid it at all times. But what we can do is we can avoid problematic people you're saying, who? Are, what, what do you mean problematic people? You know who the problematic people are. That person in the workplace that you kind of flirt with a little bit or you know that there's kind of a bit of a connection there that's beyond work colleague connection, you, you know who the problematic people are and you've got to avoid the problematic people. And so you've got to have a conversation between the two of you and say, okay, Let's, let's have a talk about what we are comfortable with and what we aren't comfortable with and what are appropriate behaviors. You know, um, there has been times in my life where Trinity has said to me, hey, uh, that person, I don't want you ever being anywhere near alone with that person. They seem like a nice person. I can't tell whether there's something wrong with them or not but Trinity just doesn't feel comfortable about them. And so we have that conversation and then I agree to stay away from it. And you know what? In just about every single case that she's done that with me, that person has ended up doing something with a married man or somebody else that they shouldn't have done. It's just about having a conversation about avoiding problematic people and what do you feel comfortable with. The second thing that I would suggest you do is tell them about it. If there's someone that that, you you have an uneasy connection with, let, let me put it this way. If you're hesitating to tell your spouse about that person, then you need to have a conversation. If you are hesitating about talking to your spouse about someone you work with, that should light up your conscience. That should be a guardrail to you. And you need to put a guardrail in place. So first of all, you've got to talk about appropriate behavior, what you expect, what you feel comfortable with. And then you've got to tell them if there's somebody that you feel like, you know, there's some hesitation there. You've got to have that honest conversation. And then the third thing is, first thing is, is have a conversation, talk about it. Second thing is tell them about it if there is someone. And then third thing to do is tell someone. Now, may not always be best to tell your wife or your husband, but you've got to tell someone. If you feel that your heart is drifting towards someone that is not your wife or not your husband, you need to tell someone. You need to tell someone straight away, not, not once it's happened. Remember, guardrails are things we put in place in the safety zone to avoid us getting into the danger zone. You need to tell someone, because often talking to someone about it diffuses it, and the secrets are never healthy to carry around. In fact, the Bible puts it this way, what is done in secret will be shouted from the rooftops. It's not healthy to carry around secrets. They will eat you up. My mum used to always say this, a problem shared is a problem halved. You've got to tell someone about it, because it will diffuse it. Talk about it, tell them about it, and tell someone about it. And like I said before, you may not agree with what I've just said, and that's okay. You don't have to, but you need to set some time aside at some stage and have a conversation with yourself and with those that you love and put some guardrails in this area of your life. Why? Because I don't just want you to be safe. I want your marriage to be safe. I want your family to be safe, and I want your future to be safe. The point of a guardrail is to light up our conscience before we hurt others and ourselves. I want to say that again. A guardrail is something you put in place to light up your conscience before, before you hurt someone or yourself. You have to make a decision whether you're going to flee or flirt. You see, society won't congratulate you and will not celebrate you for putting guardrails in place. In fact, society will possibly mock you for putting some guardrails in place. But I'm telling you, they will also absolutely trash you if you fall over in this area. And I want to tell you that the the pathway, the way to a great marriage, a great family, and a great future is to make sure we put guardrails in place around this area, whether you are married or not. And I'm telling you, like Paul said, you want to flee this stuff because of the damage it caused. And the reason is It's not because my parents told me so, and not because this was said or that was said. But Paul says the reason why you want to flee this stuff and stay away from it is because you are so valuable. You carry the Holy Spirit. You've been brought, you're owned by our Father in heaven, and he paid the ultimate price for you and I. You are valued. You are valued. And you are valued. Don't throw away your value for something that's of no value. I wanna pray for you today. Maybe you're hearing this message, you know, man, I've got some stuff from my past and stuff that around this whole sexual area or maybe you've done stuff that you shouldn't have done. And You can hear a message like this sometimes and you can feel so condemned by it and that's not my intention. God never comes to condemn and God never comes to shame. We can feel all sorts of shame around this whole area in our lives and that's not God's intention either. Remember, everything that you ever do is always forgivable. But there's also this really cool scripture in First Colossians, I think it's verse 19, where it talks about that Jesus is like an accountant who goes around and reconciles our accounts and makes them whole again. And sometimes when we've done stuff of sexual sin and we've done things that we're not proud of, there's bits of us all over the place. But Jesus said, or God said in Colossians 1.19, that Jesus is like an accountant that goes and gets those bits that you've given away and He reconciles and He makes you whole again. And I wanna pray for you today that maybe you've got some stuff, some sexual stuff in your past or whatever that, that you, know, you know that you need God to reconcile you, to make you whole again. Yes, yes, you've asked for forgiveness and God has forgiven you, but you just feel like you're just not quite whole yet.